Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we set out to start a business, a project, a book, or an endeavor of any kind, most of us begin by asking ourselves, who is my audience? And how can I make my work relevant to them? Outside the arena of biblical preaching, these are normal, practical, even necessary questions. However, for a priest, this line of thinking is inevitably toxic. Good for the material well-being of the church, but incompatible with the preaching of the biblical story, entrusted part and parcel with the consecrated lamb placed in your human hands on the day of your ordination. I can't tell you how often people have reacted to the gospel's content by saying, that's all fine and good, Father, and I agree, but no one today is interested. This statement reveals two truths. One, that the person who made it is not studying scripture. And two, that scripture itself is again fulfilled because according to scripture, no generation is, was, or will ever be interested in scripture. I explained last week that no one, let alone the preacher, can agree with or is on the side of scripture, so I'll leave that point aside. Irrelevance is the cornerstone of the biblical genre. I dare say that the mercy of the scriptural God is that he would pause from his laughter to explain to the human race why he is laughing. His reason unfolds in the content of scripture. A generation goes and a generation comes. That which has been is that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. The genealogy in Luke, akin to Ecclesiastes, and indeed all biblical anti-history, is shared with humanity to help us comprehend our irrelevance. Only when we understand what is irrelevant can we devote ourselves to the one genuinely relevant thing. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 29. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. 
And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 483 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Literature is full of famous pairings. You have Batman and Robin, Sherlock and Watson, Kirk and Spock. I could go on. In the Bible, for whatever reason, it's Joshua and Eleazar. And this pairing even shows up in the New Testament, not just here in Luke, in the genealogy, but later in the Gospel of John. It's fascinating. Now, in the Gospel of John, anyone who is half awake on Palm Sunday and not getting too emotional when the choir starts chanting, Rejoice, O Bethany, has to ask the logical question. After Jesus called Lazarus back from the tomb, doesn't he die again? <laughs> Is it really the end of the story? Is it really a victory for Lazarus? No, it's not the end of the story. Because Lazarus, whose name, which comes from this Hebrew name, Eleazar, which means God is my helper, ultimately can't go anywhere on his own. Yes, Jesus called him back as a kind of early return in order to make the point that God the Father in the story of John found useful, but Lazarus, sooner or later, will go back to the dust from which he was taken. Just like the characters in the Lucan genealogy. Every generation fails. And in each generation, God, as we've been saying over and over again, ad nauseum, to the point that even Richard and I are sick of saying the same thing over and over again, but we have no choice because that's how the text functions. In each example where everything fails, one's only hope is that God would intercede, and still when he does, despite the helping hand, functionally represented here by the name Eleazar, it's a priestly name, everything still goes nowhere. So verse 29, which we'll soon read, is an action-packed verse with some really impressive names. It's like we're reading along in the genealogy and suddenly we've got Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen appearing out of nowhere. They might win a ton of championships, but eventually the season ends and the team is broken up and we're back at square one. No one wants to hear that, but that's how it works. Yeah, I think it's significant that you and I mention how sick of the genealogy we are. Because I think by this point, it probably is supposed to be. I mean, Matthew, we're sick of it. Luke adds a ton of generations, and it's even a longer genealogy. So I think is normal reaction, and I think that the reader is tired of hearing these because it is the same old story, the same old coming up short that every generation sees. And Luke is forcing a lens upon us so that we read the Old Testament in terms of this repetitiousness that goes nowhere. 
This pairing of Joshua and Eleazar, I think, is significant because we do see them together at certain points. The fact that we have it in John, the fact that we have it in Joshua 14, Joshua and Eleazar are the ones who cross over the Jordan River. Now, a short point here, Eleazar and Eleazar are the same root. The only difference is that one means God is help. The other one means either my God is help or God will help. Obviously, they're all very similar, just like Yehoshua, Joshua, Hosea. Those are all variations on the same root. So this priest, who is the son of Aaron, goes with Moses's buddy, Joshua, and enters into the promised land. And then when Ezra goes into the promised land another time after the people are freed from Babylon, Ezra's genealogy of being a priest is listed and that he comes from Eleazar. So it's not enough for Eleazar to enter into the promised land one time with Joshua, but when Ezra enters the promised land again, we have to mention his name again and the priesthood. So throughout this reading of the genealogy is something we see throughout the reading of the Old Testament, which is the generation enters, the generation leaves. The generation is held to a high standard. The generation does not live up to the standard over and over again to the point where we're sick and tired of this. And I don't know how far we, Father, halfway through the genealogy. We'll figure out a way to get through this genealogy with our sanity intact. But that's the point. It's boring, as Father Paul used to say, into us, not boring us. It's trying to get this idea into our head of the repetitiousness of the Old Testament and the continued coming up short. So let's just be clear of the significance here. In Joshua 14, there was no entering the land without this function, depending on how it's vocalized. The point is that these consonants always defer to God as the one who provides the help now or at some time in the future. That's why in the Gospel of John, it has a baptismal connotation. Because Lazarus is helpless until the father of Jesus intercedes. Everyone makes the mistake of saying that Jesus raised Lazarus. No, Jesus asked his father to raise Lazarus. And that's actually functional here in the Lucan genealogy, because we'll see very shortly that Joshua and Eleazar can't do anything. This generation passes away, and we're right back into the mud over and over and over again. That's the point. That's what happens at the end of each gospel until the Father intercedes. How many times do we have to make that point on this podcast? But in Joshua 14, Rich, you talked about this. It is the one whose name functionally invokes the assistance of God the Father, who facilitates and supports Joshua in the entrance of the people into the land. The sons of Israel are able to enter the land because of this one whose name invokes the aid of God in the heavens. And then later in Ezra, the linkage is through this name, Abishua, which means not God is salvation, but the Father is salvation, even though ultimately he is the son of Yeshua in the priestly line. There's this connection through the line of 
Abishua, which means father is salvation or the father is the one who, you know, provides the victory. So there's a slight variation. In both cases, it's about entering into the land, returning to the land. But the bottom line is, leave the land, enter the land, dance around the land, build a fence around the land, make war over the land. God saves you in the land. God doesn't save you in the land. At the end of the day, a generation comes, a generation goes, nothing changes under the sun. Even in verse 29, which begins with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. I'm using that example because if you're scriptural and you see the names Jesus and Lazarus, essentially, they are the Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen of the Bible. These are the all-stars. You are sure to win a basketball game. It doesn't get better than Joshua and Eleazar. And where does it go? Nowhere until the father does something magnificent, which isn't going to happen in verse 29. The son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. Can you hear me grinding my wheels? Can you hear me choking on the name Mathat? Weren't we done with the Hasmoneans? Didn't we just win the championship? I thought we just had Joshua and Eleazar. I thought that was it. I thought we finally had the dynasty to end all dynasties, Rich. Allow me to extend the basketball metaphor because I was really excited with Joshua and Eleazar. But I'm a fool. <laughs> I got excited about the wrong thing. Because our hope can't be in a human dynasty. Even if Joshua and Eleazar point towards God as their reference, they're still going back to the dust from which they came because the only hope in each generation is the Torah. You're still stuck under the boot of earthly kings. That's the difficult message of the genealogy, and it is really hard to get through over and over again. It's stuck under earthly kings and earthly priests. There's no escaping this line except for one escape, which is the victory that God offers through his son that was declared at the beginning of this genealogy when Jesus was declared as the son. Because not only do you have this second Jesus slash Joshua and this additional Eliezer, but then we have Yorim, which probably is related to the name Joram or Jehoram. And Jehoram is in the list of the kings of Israel in 2 Kings 3, and a king of Judah, an unrelated king of Judah in 2 Kings 8. Here is a name of kings of both kingdoms of the divided kingdoms. So we have two kings jammed into one name. We have the Mathat, who's the fourth time that we have this reference to Matthias or Matathias, you know, in its various forms. And then again, we mentioned Levi the second time that we have it mentioned in the genealogy. It's even repeating within Luke's genealogy, but what kind of repetition do we see? The king of the Hasmoneans, 
the head of the priestly line, Levi, the father of the tribe of the priests. But then you have Eleazar, who is the son of Aaron, the predecessor of all the Aaronite priests as well. This repetition of names, even within Luke at this point, of earthly kings, earthly priests, earthly kings, earthly priests, entering into the land, entering the land again, entering the land again. And each time it recirculates. And in the last verse that we spoke about last week, a lot of this was about ornaments and divination and the need to be awake and alert. Even that doesn't work. So the old ways of doing things, trying to wake up and be ready simply leads to more idolatry. And it's a repetition over and over again of where human beings always go generation after generation. Hence, God's need to end this line, which is ultimately going to end in some sort of Herod, because that's the culmination of the Hasmonean line, or God's chosen son, Jesus. Now, you might think, as people are wont to do, Rich, with magical thinking, that, oh, yes, God chose his son, and that changes everything. But one need only raise your head and look around. Just look up, look around and see the poor, see the ignorance, see the cruelty, see how people behave. I mean, we've given plenty of examples over the years on this program. Just look at how defensive and idiotic and reactive Americans are. You, Americans can't even take criticism anymore. The way that we challenge each other, the way that we preach, the way that we talk on this podcast is so different from the way that Americans interact, generally speaking, in 2023. Just look at the state of the world and tell me that everything is fine now because of the proclamation of the gospel. Everything is not fine Tell me everything has changed because of the proclamation of the gospel. Everything has not changed. Tell me that we're living in the kingdom because of the proclamation of the gospel. As my father would say, if you really believe that, you're dreaming of hot cabbages. Not only is the world today no different than the world of verse 29 in the Lucan genealogy, it's worse. It's objectively worse. I know everyone wants to say it's better because you don't have to do dishes anymore and because you can ask a bot what time it is. Good for you. Your life is more convenient than Pharaoh's was in the story. That's exciting. It also means that for people who don't have it easy, it's much harder. Don't kid yourself. So what's going on? Well, because of the writers of the New Testament, the wisdom of verse 29 is now accessible and available to more people. So more people get to hear the story of Joshua and Eleazar, which means more people can benefit from the wisdom that gave them hope during their short lifespan in verse 29, which is your short lifespan. And why? 
because through the proclamation of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this teaching still stands and you can still hear it and you can still learn from it and you can still find hope in it and through it and from it. So that despite the fact that we are governed by the same incompetent bunch of greedy, abusive tyrants, one way or another, I mean, it doesn't matter what your politics are, we are always under the boot of cruelty in the world. And if you think otherwise, then go look up some statistics about what's actually happening in the world and learn something and then come back and we'll talk. Despite all of that, there's hope through this instruction. This genealogy of Luke is the anti-progress genealogy. It shows that generation after generation, we have the same old priests, we have the same old Mattathiases, we have the same old pairings of Joshua and Eleazar, and just like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, it's the next season and they have to start all over again. And then eventually the two of them retire and then the Bulls have to figure out something else. But, you know, eventually Michael Jordan will die and there'll be shoes named after him. There'll be a statue of him in Chicago. And then where will our world go from there? The same place it's always been. There was a time before Michael Jordan. There was a time after Michael Jordan. He played fantastic basketball with his teammate, Scottie Pippen, and then they both passed away. And again, one day we'll have some amazing basketball players. They'll name shoes after them. Maybe this time they'll be smart. They'll have two lines of shoes that they'll name after them and double their money. We have players who score baskets, who sell shoes, and then we have more players who shoot baskets and sell shoes generation after generation. It's like at the end of Return of the Jedi. You have all the different dead Jedi Masters. Okay, great. And then you end it with Luke, and then Luke's going to be a dead Jedi Master at some point. And, you know, and where are we going to be? We're going to be better than before Yoda was born? Probably not. That's just how it goes. It just keeps repeating over and over again. And we get sick of the Star Wars chronology of so many movies because they're trying to come up with ideas. Uh-huh. Yeah. The Bible is able to do it for a pretty long time, too. We have to realize that the Bible is trying to show what human history is. We like to spice up our history books in the United States with this invention or that invention. Okay, fine. So now we have, like you said, Father, dishwashers. Okay, now we save time washing dishes. So now we do. You know what people do now that we have dishwashers? They wash dishes more often. When there were clothes washers, they invented clothes washers. This is going to save uh, housewives all this time on washing clothes. But you know what it did? They washed clothes more often. They used to wash a pair of pants once every month. They got washers. Now they wash them every week. It's the same amount of work. They just do it more often. Nothing changes under the sun. And Luke is doing a fantastic job of reminding us that in the most god-awful, boring way he possibly could. I'm going to say this, Rich, to our listeners, and they won't believe us, but it's the truth. And I'm going to say it first in the form of a question. Does anyone know what games, what sports people played at the time of the writing of the Bible? I'm not talking about the chariot races. Does anyone know what the average games that people played were in the ancient Near East? Maybe backgammon. Maybe you'll talk about chariot races. 
But beyond that, do you have any clue what people did every day? You're talking about Michael Jordan having a statue because he was great at basketball. What is basketball? In a thousand years, will anyone know that there was a civilization that played basketball? You think so, but you can't be sure. We make assumptions about permanence and relevance. They're just assumptions. We don't know what came before, and Scripture is telling us that nothing is permanent. Everything fades. The only thing that counts as each generation returns to the dust. It's not your accomplishments. It's not your legacy. It's the one thing that gives life to each generation. And if you care about anything at all, it's the cause of that teaching that gives life to each generation. That's what love is. That's what real purpose is. That's what the genealogy is hammering into us. That's why you can't talk about the silly Star Wars in the same sentence as Scripture. Because Star Wars just trying to make itself relevant. Scripture is demanding that you understand what irrelevance is. It's a completely different system. Unparalleled. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.